Welcome to Tales of Britain and Ireland. This is a podcast telling the stories, legends and folk tales of Britain and Ireland in no particular order. Presented by Graham and coming direct from South Yorkshire, each episode tells a story or selection of stories from all across these islands and throughout their history, followed by a short and decidedly inexpert discussion of the origin and themes of each tale. Welcome back everyone. Today we're going to the south of Ireland, counties Waterford and Tipperary in particular, and rather than this being one story with a clear narrative through, it's more a patchwork of assembled accounts that I've kind of made into a biography of sorts. No, that's not right, because most of it is when she's not alive, so a fanatography, maybe? Anyway, it's about a figure known as Petticoat Loose. So no pre-episode chat this time. The podcast has a Patreon, I'm on TikTok, Instagram, and now Mastodon, blah 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 blah. Here we go. This is the life, and very active afterlife, of Petticoat Loose. Up into the Knockmealdown Mountains went the cart. The country around was vast and empty, and there was no movement for miles around, apart from the steady turning of the cartwheels. It was a quiet, still night, not a cloud in the sky, and the barren landscape was lit up by moon and stars. Slowly but surely, the horse and the two men went. There was no conversation to be had between them. The two spent much time going between Dungarvan and the village of Clugeen, and on such journeys there were men of few words. They could probably have done with a radio show, or a podcast even, to listen to. But they knew not of such things, and so simply occupied themselves with their own thoughts. Rich inner lives, I imagine. And the same went for the horse, which had done this journey many a time, and was gently plodding along, perhaps wishing it was listening to some horse-type podcast. True equine. No, that's not close enough. Um, Maybe uh, the Joe Rogan experience, but Joe Rogan is a horse? You know what, you're better off listening to lawmen for folklore-related puns. Why did I start this? The point is that the horse didn't have a podcast anyway, and there was nothing to do but trudge determinedly on. Now, if you know even a little bit about the Irish countryside and its reputation in folklore, you might ask why exactly these people were out at night, traversing such wild country, when the fairies, the Aeshi as they were called, the ghosts, though many things that were a combination of those and things that were something else entirely, made the lonely roads their home and certainly had form in attacking travellers. And fair point, really. But just because the place was fair awash with supernatural terrors didn't mean that life could stop. There were, I'm afraid, deadlines of a sort back then, and it wasn't easy just to pay for an Airbnb for the night or something because you'd been to market and found yourself far from home. Life didn't work at that pace or with such luxury. But a broader point is that all of those terrors weren't common, exactly, just a lot more common than they are, perhaps, nowadays. And these three had made a nighttime journey over the mountains many times, and those trips had been uneventful hours of relaxed dullness, of shivering in the chilly rains, and occasionally of exuberant high spirits that flowed from a shared bottle. But it could not always be so. It was the nag that heard it first. Well, not quite heard, perhaps, but felt something in the air, 
a chill which skipped the sensation of cold on the skin and stabbed an icy finger straight to the heart. But the horse did not bolt. It stopped. It raised its head and looked around. And then the men on the cart felt it too, then heard it. One of them turned his head, and behind them, lit up in the moonlight, he saw it. Saw her, heading across the scrub towards them. God help us, it's Petticoat Loose. She's come to kill us. And indeed it was Petticoat Loose. Now I'm not going to give you an exact description of what Petticoat Loose looked like. Stories are not very forthcoming on the matter. Perhaps unsurprisingly, given the state of absolute mind-destroying terror that every eyewitness to her found themselves in. But what we do know is this. She was a dead woman roaming the land at night. But she was not an insubstantial ghost of the type that is so recognisable to us now. Some wispy, translucent figure, pale as the consumptive romance novel heroine, easily mistakable for a diaphanous dress buffeted by a strong wind. A spirit eerie and creepy and not quite of this world. No, she was almost the exact opposite of that. A very definite physical, corporeal presence whose every solid footstep seemed to rock the earth itself. Literally, for she was that heavy. She had been tall in her life, and if anything, she was taller still in death. And around her waist was a great chain. The sounds of clanking iron accompanied each dreadful step. The dead woman strode through the night towards the three travellers, and they trembled at her approach. Traversing the ground at great speed, she was soon upon them, leaping up onto the cart and leering at them with a maddening and sick delight. Now, despite her Tyrannosaurus-like footsteps, she was regular size, this ghost, or at least in the bounds of regular size for people. But her mass and her height were not related in the usual way you'd expect for a human. Rather than your usual ghost lighter than air, it was as if her spectral form was made of some sort of super-dense lead, a spectral neutron star. They said that each arm of hers weighed 500 weights, or about 8 stone, and that the whole of her weighed a ton. Which really raises some quite serious questions about who managed to get her onto a scale to determine this, and an industrial scale at that, that'll take one of your bathroom ones right out. But no matter, for some paranormal investigator must have, for they were correct about her immense mass. And while the two men shook like frightened leaves, the horse, by instinct, tried to pull the cart containing them and this hell spirit who was now cackling madly. And the horse could not. And now it tried to bolt. Fear coursed through it. In panic desperation it tried to flee from its most unnatural passenger. But the cart moved not at all and the horse continued to struggle. Though the night was chilly, the beast broke out in a sweat from the exertion while the men looked on, frozen in their own cold sweats. Try as it might, the horse couldn't move the cart. It was covered in perspiration now, great sticky beads of it rolling down its fur. And then Petticoat Loose jumped from the wagon onto the horse, which sagged and collapsed. It was not an easy nor a quick death. She didn't simply crush the horse. It tried to get up under her, tried to carry her on its back. But with that weight, it could not. It made terrible, tortured noises, awful shrieking and wheezing until, after an agonising amount of time, it lay dead on the road. 
and the dreadful thing that had once been a woman turned its grinning visage back to the inhabitants of the cart, who were saying their prayers to no avail. Sing, came the mad voice from the thing that sat atop the warm horse corpse. What? came the voice of the elder carter. You heard me, sing, sing for me now, or... And she gestured at the poor old horse. Maybe it was the prayers that they had so fervently muttered. Maybe they just happened to be excellent singers. But stutteringly at first, and then with increasing confidence in their voices, if not in their souls, the two men began to sing. It was not the greatest song in the world they sang, but in this supernatural confrontation on a long and lonesome road, such was not required. Any song would do. Many songs. For as soon as one threatened to come to an end, its last lines drawing to a close, Petticoat Loose would demand, Sing! More singing! And she clapped and shrieked demonically as they found a new song, every song they knew, of drinking, of young love, of missing home, of murder, the death of innocence, the hardship of unrelenting work, the crimes of the English, many and terrible they were, of marching to war, of returning for your sweetheart to find her married to another. And each petticoat loose met with the same delight and followed up with the same demand. Sing! Sing! The men's voices became cracked and their throats burnt, but as long as they sang she did not attack but listened in rapt attention or whirled around, thumping the ground, leaving great cracks in the road and flattening vegetation. At the point where simply taking a breath seemed to fill the inside of their parched throats with fire, and words threatened to become inarticulate rasps, the first rays of sun appeared over the horizon. And at that, Petticoat Loose disappeared, leaving behind her a dead horse, two utterly broken men and a large patch of road all torn up. The two were never the same again. Never again did they make the journey along that road at night. And even in the daylight they would go the whole route through the mountains, bursting uncontrollably into desperate, sobbing song. She hadn't always been petticoat loose, though she had received that moniker before she died. But she'd been born Mary Hannigan, and from an early age she was different. Now I hope that in the discourse we have moved well past not like other girls, unpacked that problematic trope and hopefully put it firmly to bed, instead choosing to build up all women and to embrace the validity of expressions of femininity to rejoice in those aspects of humanity just as much as those traditionally considered masculine without any shame, for women to build each other up rather than creating barriers between them and tearing each other down. But this was a time when the socially permitted options available for women were very much scarce pickings. The roles there were were carefully proscribed, prescribed and circumscribed, and considering those very narrow limits of acceptable behaviour, it really was true to say that Mary was not like other girls. The farmer's daughter was a wild child from an early age, and unlike many of her peers, such aspects of her personality did not drop away as she grew. And how she grew, up and up, eventually passing in height even a good number of the men of the village. Not unnaturally tall though, she was no supernatural being, at least not yet. But tall enough that she very much stood out. 
She was strong as well, and growing up different in a culture that didn't really like different, she learned to handle herself very well indeed, and she gave as good as she got, until people learned to leave her and her fierce temper alone. But though she was a good worker, as good as any man and better than most, she was shunned from what passed as polite society. But as the usual doors slammed shut, well, others opened. And eventually the routes in life left open to Mary became only the ones open to those excluded from the rest of society. And so she fell into a life that was dissolute and full of sin. Now sin encompasses a range of activities. Some of those activities most people today would consider perfectly regular behaviour, but were grave crimes then. But all the way through to sins that were frankly pretty awful in any society in any time. And Mary really covered the whole range here, delighting both in the sins that were reserved usually for women, all of those, but as well all the sins that were reserved for men. Those two young Mary engaged willfully in, and that of course was a great sin of its own. She drank and she danced and fought and gambled and engaged in all the petty frauds. Some muttered that she was a witch, though they didn't voice those concerns to her, and perhaps she was but she was guilty of far worse than that. Everywhere she went, she was recognised instantly. It was pretty difficult to keep a low profile generally in the townships of Ireland, but when Mary towered over all the other women and most of the men and was tearing it up drunkenly on the dance floor, everyone knew who she was. Not just in the vicinity of the village of Clegeen, but all throughout counties Waterford, Tipperary and further afield too. And how did Mary become known as Petticoat Loose, you may be asking? And a fair question it is at that. Now we all know how easy it is for people to get unusual nicknames. You know, you do something slightly out of the ordinary once and it sticks with you your whole life. People called Hat Dave because, well, Dave wore a funny hat once. I went to secondary school with somebody called Sheepy who had apparently once brought a toy sheep into primary school many years before and it had just kind of stuck with him. I wonder whether he's still called Sheepy to this day. Now it wasn't quite as ridiculous as this, but it was a similar kind of process. But far more scandalous, for one particular wild evening at a wedding, the live, powerful dancer that was Mary Hannigan was giving it her all on the dance floor, and she was full of good cheer, which means she was pissed. She was shaking her funky stuff with gay abandon to the very best of tunes. This was rural Ireland, so that tune may well have been one played by a piper or fiddler who learnt it from the good folk pretty common occurrence that, and that makes for some damn good tunes. Step we gilly on we go, heel for heel and toe for toe, arm and arm and arm we go, off on Murray's wedding. Step we gilly on we go, heel for heel and toe for toe, arm and arm and arm we go, off on Murray's wedding. She tripped the light fantastic, whirling around and around with the other late night revellers, of which there were many, when disaster. Her skirt caught on a nail in the floor or on the wall, and with her next turn she tore it right off of her. Now, some say her petticoats came with it. Some say her petticoats were merely revealed. But whichever it was, that was enough. They were on display or even ripped off, and the public sight of a woman's voluminous undergarments was a source of considerable scandal and gossip. And that applied even to a woman of not particularly high status as she was. The story was passed around of a speed to rival the fastest horse in the land, and soon everybody knew what had happened to Mary. 
that her petticoat had been loosed upon the world, running rampant and striking terror into the hearts of the prudish, sexually fearful society whose restrictive, uncomfortable moral values Mary was rapidly sloughing off, emerging as somebody quite different, not like other girls. A rampageous slattern, as one author genuinely describes her, that's a real quote there. And from then on, she was known as Petticoat Loose. Now she does not get a voice while she lives, Mary Hannigan, so we hear only others' judgments of her. I for one hope she enjoyed her life, because, well, everybody should really, shouldn't they? And you know what, given the descriptions of it, I reckon she must have enjoyed it just a little. Now, despite her terrible reputation, she did not fail to attract male attention in an amorous way. Hardly surprising, really. There's a whole load of attraction to be had in an exciting character. Stability is far from the only thing one wants in a wife. Or so I'm led to believe. And so she met a man and was wed. And maybe the people hoped that, as with many, this would calm her down. But alas for her husband, it did nothing of the sort, and whatever passion had drawn them together, if this was not some forced circumstance at the start, as well it might have been, well, that passion was soon extinguished, and the honest farmer who she had married was first beaten by Mary, and then he turned up rather dead. And the very young widow Mary was soon shacked up with another. The whispering that had accompanied her her whole life became a much louder murmuring then, though still any that were foolish enough to utter such in the hearing of Petticoat Loose soon found her hands connecting with their face, and they were made to eat their words along with a number of their teeth. Now, you might think that a woman such as this was owed a long life and at least a very dramatic death. Or maybe that's just the storyteller's desire for satisfying narratives finally tearing through my mouth after years of my brain beating it down and making it tell stories with no particular structure or meaning. Give her a long life, give her an epic death, it cries at me. No, I just want slice of life stuff, I say. Okay, if you've not listened to the podcast before, this might not make any sense. I'm going to get on with the story. And the story isn't really about her death anyway, it's what happens afterwards. And I suppose she did die in an ignominious way that reflected the sinful life of indulgence and excess which she had lived. For she was young still, and she was in the pub where oft she could be found drinking away with all the men, as was her wont, which was of course completely unacceptable to society. And a competition was underway, for she had boasted about how much she could drink and been called on it. So she had started in her usual manner, taking a half gallon of beer, which is four pints or so, and drinking it down with barely a breath between gulps. It disappeared down her impressive gullet, she stood up triumphantly, wiped her arm across her mouth, and then collapsed to the floor. Stone dead. Now, such were the rumours that had swirled around her, that when it came to the burial, well, no one was having her. And so she was buried with relatively little ceremony in unconsecrated ground. Which, you know, is a choice that somebody made It feels to me like the priests really missed a trick here, because it kind of seems like burying people outside of hallowed ground was really just asking for trouble. Do you want ghosts? That's how you get ghosts. But 
maybe no one wanted to cover the costs. Maybe the idea of her being buried in Hallogram was somehow even worse than, well, what happened. Or perhaps nobody involved the church at all. Some of her drinking buddies at the pub or her second husband just went ahead and buried her off their own backs. I'm not sure, it isn't mentioned anywhere, but it came to pass that the large corpse of this impressive woman, dead from drink at a very young age, was buried in unhallowed ground. And that was where all the problems started. But they didn't start immediately. Petticoat Luce died, her husband presumably moved on, and the community by and large forgot about her. Seven years passed. And there wasn't one moment, one encounter, that you could definitely say, this, this was the first time she appeared. No inciting incident. No one was there to witness her spirit emerge from the grave or to escape from hell chain wrapped around her or however it was that she came to be back in the Nogmodan Mountains and the land surrounding them. Like a lot of this story, the supernatural element is a mystery to us. But it kind of went like this. Imagine a metaphorical bank of phones. There's lots of them on a table and they've got old-style receivers and rotary dials. One rings. It's answered. That squeaky high-pitched talking on the phone voice comes out of it. Yes, I see. The phone is put down. It rings immediately again and is answered. And then a light starts flashing on another phone on the desk, which is answered by another person at the same time. And then lights start flashing on all the phones and they start ringing all at once. It was this but happening instead of with phones, with the tales of terrified nighttime travellers. A rider had met a very tall woman late at night, who asked if she could accompany him, and seeing no reason why not, he had kindly agreed, only to find his horse soon near crushed to death by the weight of the phantom riding behind him. She declared that she spared him only because he had not spurned her request. A spirit had been seen by the old oak tree by one man who had fled, but the next day a body was found, crushed as if by a vast rock. Huge, heavy hands had smashed into the poor fellow. A man fetching a pail of water near the well at his house was accosted by the spirit, who, grinning through her evil teeth, demanded he strip for her. Terrified he did so, stood before her naked in the cold night, but still with his scapula hanging from his shoulders. If you haven't encountered them before, by the way, a scapula is two small pieces of fabric attached by a string. Hung over the shoulders, it represents the bearer's faith in Christ, which of course this good man had in abundance. And take off the scapula, said Petticoat Loose. And as he stood there shaking with fright and the cold, reached up to his neck to remove it, he felt its connection to his faith, and it seemed to be telling him, no, don't. He regarded the unholy monstrosity before him, urging him to remove it. And, waveringly, he said, No, no, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not taking it off. He'd gone this far, but he wasn't taking off the only protection he might have. And she had roared and stamped her feet, and then she raised her fist and gave him a mighty blow, which seemed to glance off him as if she was as insubstantial as one of those modern ghosts. 
Well for ye it is, for if ye had taken them off, that blow would have killed you, she said. And off she went. Yet another man was chased by a phantom all the way to his door and managed to escape inside his house, but was so broken by the experience that he took to his bed and never recovered, perishing soon afterwards, his face a rigid mask of terror. Quite aside from all the tales, the ghost left physical evidence, her footprints in the rocks at Salmon's Leap and her fingerprints at Sleepy Rock. Presumably this was witnessed by someone, so we know they were hers, but they definitely were. Most worryingly of all, a priest was found dead on the road, crushed another one of her victims. On and on and on. There seemed no sense to the encounters, no pattern of when and where they occurred, save on the roads up to and through the mountains. Any night could be the turn of a traveller on those roads to have their own audience with her. But as for what she wanted, why she was doing all this, that was unclear, save to scare and sometimes murder. She seemed to be happy to spread a generalised terror throughout the community that perhaps she considered had done her wrong, and no more motive for the spirit's actions could be imputed than that. Now it became evident fairly quickly that all the reports were the actions of one being who had taken to these lonely roads. But it wasn't clear at the beginning that this was Petticoat Loose. There were of course other phantoms out there, and the fairies, so a lot of scary things on the road and someone having a terrifying encounter was unlikely to positively ID their attacker as an infamous woman who had died many years before. But after a while, as multiple accounts were collated, taken from those sane enough to give them, her notable height and immense strength came up again and again as the key differentiators of this spectre, and people began to suspect. And at some point or another, someone who knew her in her life encountered her and confirmed it. Petticoat Loose was back, and if they thought she was a menace to society before of her strong-willed womanly ways and loose morals, brackets, for a woman, close brackets, well, now they were discovering what a real menace to society looked like. Though, you know, I doubt this made many of them reconsider the social order. An evil, strong-willed woman coming back as a murderous ghost didn't really lend much weight to the argument that maybe women should have some autonomy, really. A menace that society she did. However, these were not defenceless people. Like many communities I've talked about on this podcast who are confronted with the supernatural as hard fact of daily life, they had developed ways of dealing with it. Not perfect ways, but some. And the people put all their not inconsiderable knowledge and skills into defending themselves against this threat. Now it might seem somewhat narratively convenient that people knew how to defend against ghosts, but I think the internal logic of the situation is pretty sound, actually. If the dead can come back and murder people pretty much at will, then soon, either people find a way of dealing with these unquiet, bloodthirsty dead, or, well, there probably wouldn't be much of humanity left at all. And so, that there are any of us left over to tell these stories required methods of survival. And they actually had these in great abundance general protections against all the nighttime terrors that roamed the land, methods that were taken on advice from the church, and some that were older even than that. And if she'd been trying to keep her specific weaknesses secret, Petticoat Loose had been damn careless with disclosing what it was that kept people outside of her power. And very soon everyone on the road wore a scapular at all times, and Carters remembered that if they did encounter a strange woman, 
they would always offer her a lift and be very polite to her. A side effect of this was that it made things a bit more pleasant for any woman travelling on a road by themselves. Other common protective talismans were also carried. There were a huge array of them actually. Sticks of hazel, prayer books, steel knives and blackthorn sticks to name but a few. These ghosts apparently had quite a few weaknesses. Soon most people were, to a greater or lesser extent, tooled up to defend themselves from the strange powers of the malevolent Petticoat Loose. It was not always successful. A man battled her with his blackthorn stick, which worked to keep him safe, except that she kept on harrying him, until finally his stick was broken. She was much weakened, and he fled to a nearby house, banging on the door and pleading to be let in. For in most cases it did seem that the threshold was the ultimate defence against her. But the occupants of the house, well, they say that they thought it was her banging on the door. But to me that sounds like an excuse afterwards. I doubt they'd mistake the desperate living man for Petticoat Loose. Rather they were probably just too afraid to help. But whatever the truth of it, right outside their doorway, Petticoat Loose crushed the unfortunate man to death and his broken blackthorn stick was found next to his mangled corpse. But on balance, the methods were more successful than not, and human deaths attributable to an encounter with her started to go down considerably. Though unfortunately the same could not be said of the deaths of horses, which seemed to come out the worse of every encounter with her, either dying on the road under her immense weight, or actually managing to make it home and then dying in the night. On a few occasions, stables themselves became the target of her ire, and she would attack them there, and either it was ineffective to do so, or just no one thought it was proper to give a horse a big horse scapula, and being so unprotected, she could murder them with impunity. Once again, motive remains a mystery, and quite frankly baffling, and having no relationship to the biography of her life I sketched for you earlier. I suppose that's just the difference between your real-life ghost, like this one, and those that are purely fictional. It's not neat. Maybe she just had a bit of a hatred for horses. More likely she was an opportunist, causing misery where she could. Now despite the presence of the protections, her nighttime activities did not cease, and indeed she became a common fixture on the roads of Waterford and Tipperary, and no one could guarantee being entirely safe from her. But of course, personal talismans and keepsakes weren't all the community had in their arsenal to deal with the supernatural. No, they had something much more powerful on their side. And I'm going to take a little bit of a wandering detour to consider the wider social setup here in rural supernatural plagued folkloric Ireland. Now, if you've listened to the episodes about the Irish fairies, the ASG, you might recall that there were a set of people who you might go to if you were troubled by the ASG. Typically called fairy doctors or band fassa, that's wise women, these are people who might advise on protection against the fairies, curing illnesses wrought by them and in some cases actively working against them. These people's power came from a number of sources, but many of them had a special relationship with the fairies. They might have spent time with them when they were young, or may have had a fairy lover, or otherwise done them a favour to get in their good graces. Some of these people did this job pretty much full-time, and others could be members of the community, holding a variety of different positions, having this role as kind of a fairy guard as a part-time gig. 
And this kind of applies more or less across Britain as well, where such magic users are often referred to by the generalised term cunning folk. But is just much more pronounced in Ireland because the fairies were much more common there, though hardly rare in Britain. And the fairy doctors were much more specifically set up to combat the fairies than your Welsh, English or Scottish cunning person who was likely to be much more adept at combating a greater threat there, witches. And I am very much wandering off topic here. So to circle back, you've got these fairy doctors as one branch of the private supernatural emergency services. But the thing is that they, they struggle in cases like this. Sometimes they'd get involved anyway, but overall anything involving ghosts wasn't their forte. So when you had a ghost, well, then enter the church, whose presence was of course ubiquitous across Ireland. And as well as all the preaching, births, funerals, marriages, all of that usual stuff, priests had a role to play in this random encounter-filled world. Now the church was pretty rubbish with dealing with fairies, might be able to if needed sometimes, but wouldn't be your first port of call. However, when it came to souls of the damned roaming the earth, they had all the technical know-how and lots and lots of experience, plus a direct line to the guy who organised this whole afterlife business in the first place. Centuries of experience of dealing with pissed off ghosts. Together these two pillars, the far more official organisation of the church and the more grassroots community-based fairy doctors, provided for society a method not just for protection, but for actively resisting supernatural threats, taking the fight to them. Now in all the various folktales, they seemingly didn't join up with each other very much. I really want to see more cool teams, almost role-playing game adventurer party-like, priests and fairy doctors fighting side by side to keep humanity safe. I'm confident there's a great film premise there. Anyway, even though they didn't actually work together actively, together, these two groups, they kept the land for humanity. By which I mean humans who were still alive, preventing it from being overrun by ghosts, fairies and monsters. And Petticoat Loose fell firmly under the church's jurisdiction. One fateful night, Petticoat Loose made the tactical error of attacking a cart on which a priest rode. Now I'm fairly sure he was just a random passenger, but I like to imagine the people have really wised up and started like a sort of convoy system where guard priests are posted on carts to defend against her. But in the story he just so happens to be hitching a lift. However it happened, Petticoat Loose arrived at the cart in her usual manner, grinning madly, ground thundering, chain clanking horse feeling severely threatened. And without any hesitation, down from the cart leapt the priest to confront the monster. Legend doesn't say if he was young, cocky or old and experienced, but he was certainly confident and prepared for his battle. From beneath his voluminous cassock, out came a bottle of holy water. Petticoat Loose loomed over him, a towering, warped, bestial figure. She lost any pretense of being a living being when she spied the priest, instead adopting her most grotesque, diabolical form. He uncorked the bottle with a motion like pulling the pin from a hand grenade, and he flung the blessed water over her. She shrieked and shrank back. 
and from somewhere else under his vestments he produced a book of prayers, and within seconds he had it open and was reading from it in the moonlight. And as he did, Petticoat Loose screamed and screamed. And she shrunk, getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Near the mountain pass in which this confrontation was taking place was Bay Lock, a lake small in surface area, but very, very deep indeed. Many said it was bottomless. And when the priest had completely read Petticoat Loose down, as it was called, making her small enough to fit inside a bottle, he banished her soul into the dark depths of Bay Lock. Down and down under the great weight of water, the spirit of Petticoat Loose sank into the inky black darkness. Her screaming stopped. There was silence in the night. She was gone. And that was it. There were no more murders. No more taking to the nighttime roads only in fear. No more horses exhausted unto death. The unnamed priest had done the people of the counties a great service. And instead of worrying about Petticoat Loose, they had more time to worry about all the usual worries. Disease, the fairies, English, different ghosts. It improved their lives a little tiny bit, and certainly saved some. And with that, we say goodbye to Petticoat Loose. Record scratch. I tried to get a record scratch sound, couldn't get one that sounded decent enough, so I'm just going to say it. Record scratch. Petticoat Loose was gone forever, or at least... That's what everyone thought. A year or so passed, maybe more. Making an exact note of such things as the passage of time was much less important than recording the events that happened. And we do know that. Now, without the constant reminders of the danger, people had reverted to their old ways. Not being as careful on the roads, not wearing scapulars, not carrying various branches, and also not being so polite to women they met. One night, a long time after Petticoat Loose was banished, a carter was taking the road over the mountains on his lonesome, and up on a winding stretch of road, a young woman approached him and asked him, very politely, for a lift. He didn't think to question why she was up here all alone at night. I mean, probably just walking. A lot of people had to do that back then. And so he gave an answer that my source describes as, quote, saucy, unquote, which I interpret at best as a mistimed compliment, and at worst and much more likely, it was basically a suggestion of sexual assault. And when the woman unsurprisingly didn't respond positively to this comment, the carter simply continued without her, leaving her behind. Now Petticoat Loose, for it was her in one of her more human forms, she didn't come and weigh his horses down or anything. I assume she was still recovering from her time in the lake. Her escape from which will never be quite explained, but I think it's likely that the priest was even not powerful enough or had only banished her there for a certain amount of time. This often seems to be the case when a priest hopes that a spirit can be reformed, and then when it leaves its captivity, it will make its amends and presumably go off to heaven. This did not happen in this case. But anyway, she was out, and the carter left our newly escaped ghost behind him. The man continued on, reached his small house in not too much time, made himself supper, ate it up, and headed to bed. And just as he was doing so, there came a rapping sound at the window. He turned, alarmed. It came again, tapping against the glass from outside. Insistent tapping. 
The hairs on the back of his neck and his arms stood up. Trance-like, he willed himself to walk towards the window, despite his fear, doing that thing where he was trying to tell himself, oh, it's nothing, it's nothing. Like, I mean, it mostly is nothing when you're in a house alone and hear a noise. So don't be afraid. You don't want to be afraid. He made his way to the dark window, creeping ever so slowly in his own house. A face at the window. He jumped backwards, gave a little shriek. The face was still there, he hadn't imagined it. A smiling face, looking in at him. A woman's face. A woman he didn't recognise. No, wait, was that the woman from the road? Had she got here while he was eating, followed him? She looked straight at him, met his blue eyes with her yellowish ones, smiled, and knocked on the window again. The sudden shock over, the man began to regain his composure, and his fear, now that it was just a person, was replaced with anger. Crazy woman. He walked to the window, flung it open. He started to speak. What the devil do you think? Shake my hand, cart driver, she said, calmly. And he was not compelled by supernatural force, just an autonomic response kicked in as he heard those words said. He reached through his window, took hold of the hand she proffered, and in one easy motion she ripped his arm out of its socket, clear off of him. She smiled horribly and ran away into the night, waving his arm in the air. By some miracle, he didn't die. And because of his survival, everybody knew soon enough the petticoat loose was, well, loose again. And things went back pretty much the way they had been before. Petticoat Loose was bothering all sorts of people, murder most foul occurred, scapulars were dug out from behind whatever the equivalent of sofa cushions were, horses had to carry the ton load of Petticoat Loose, started sweating profusely, and then expired with a terrible whinny. And this time, it continued for, well, years, years and years, decades. And Petticoat Loose widened her range, her territory almost, with seemingly as little reason as she did anything else. She'd pop up on roads and at ruins and gnarly oak trees all over the south of Ireland. The only guarantee was that she was never in the same place two nights in a row, which made attempts to find her and stop her by priests more difficult. A few did try, but it was dangerous work. Petticoat Loose had got out of the bottomless bay lock after all. No common spirit she. One odd such failed attempt came when a man agreed to have a fair fight with her. He met her one night, proposed that the next night they should have a fair fight, and for some unscrutable reason she agreed. And then he turned up the next night with a priest. I'm not entirely sure how that fits into fair fight if I'm being honest, but Perhaps he just wasn't so invested in the whole fair bit of the thing as Petticoat Loose was. The priest knew what he was doing and he brought his bottle of water and his book of prayers and he even encircled the man and himself in a ring of holy water so Petticoat Loose couldn't get at them. And she was thwarted by that. For about two minutes. I'm not sure if it was like a shield in a computer game and she kind of smashed away its hit points or whether the holy water just dried out. 
but after an initial bout of frustration, she broke through the not-so-impenetrable barrier, flicked the man who had proposed the fight with one finger, and sent him flying through the air, sprawling onto the ground, shattering his bones. And then she gave a sweet... I win, and a horrible smile, before running off into the night. And so it continued. Stories spread around her, Petticoat Loose. In some places she became known as Petticoat Lucy, as the tale was passed around, and people grew up from babes to adults knowing her name. Fear of her was used to keep children in good order, and to keep men being courteous to women they met on the roads. Be good children, be kind men, or Petticoat Loose will get you. And unlike many a nursery bogey, this was no idle threat. Though, you being good didn't have much to do with it, I suppose. Whether good or bad, she might well get you. So her reign of terror continued, and it seemed she would perhaps be there till the very end of days itself, at which point surely she would be finally taken down into hell. But in the end, everything came to a head, a few years shy of Judgment Day. These were Petticoat Luce's roads now, and she roamed them seemingly with impunity. Sometimes she'd stalk her prey, and sometimes she'd just wait, patiently, for the flies to come into her web, so to speak. This was one of those times. She was standing upon a gatepost at the side of the road, and three men were coming down it. No cart this time, no horse for her to flatten, but this was still fine sport for her. She waited, still and silent. And in their high-spirited chatter, they failed to notice the phantom until she leapt down in front of them with a great boom that rang out across the land. Showing a flair for the dramatic there, it's clear she enjoyed the terror of her victims just as much as the more physical aspect of their suffering. Of the three men, two were quite tall and one considerably shorter. And it was he who cried out, God help us, it's Petticoat Loose! Indeed it is, she said. And... God won't be helping you. Towards them she came, ground shaking with every step. And the two tall men turned tail and ran for it. But not the short one. He reached under his jacket. While there are many talismans and blessings and the like I've mentioned, I've held one back. An item known to have some considerable power against a number of supernatural beings, but which required a more active role from its wielder, the most forms of these protective amulets. Most were too timid to attempt to use it, but not all, not this short king. Out it came, a steel-bladed knife with a black metal handle made of bog oak, thousands of years old. These black-handled knives were powerful strong against the supernatural should you have the courage to wield them. And as Petticoat Loose advanced on him, the short man did not shrink back. Instead, he grabbed onto that great chain that hung around her waist, tightened it as hard as he could. With that in one hand, he swung around until he was directly behind her. She gave an ear-splitting wail, but he was not distracted from his task, and with a well-aimed strong blow, he stabbed her with the knife, sinking it in directly between the shoulder blades. Stabbing a ghost might not be the way we would think about dealing with them typically. But it was fairly common with these more physical ghosts, which kind of makes sense, I suppose. Their corporeality was a bit of a two-way street, 
and a black-handled knife could cause some serious damage. The problem, though, was that it wasn't quite enough to take them down. Firstly, there was the usual that the man had to deal with. Take it, stab it in again, shouted Petticoat Loose. A strange request, it might seem. But that was a well-known phrase uttered by spirits who had been so stabbed. And well, this wasn't the short man's first rodeo. Or at least he had heard stories of other rodeos, so was well clued up. I won't be doing that now, he said. For he knew if he took the knife out for even an instant to try and stab her again, then she would have her full power and he would surely be killed. But he held firmly to the chain and to the knife that remained sunk in her back, and for all her fury her supernatural powers were now considerably diminished, and she only had power to hurt him if he wasn't careful. But this wasn't over yet. In fact, that was almost the easy bit. And so began the march. The man held the black handle knife very firmly, using it to force Petticoat loose to walk down the road, gripping onto it for dear life. Oh, it was terrible what happened to him, said one of the tall men. Petticoat Loose just got him. We, we couldn't help at all, could we? He was talking to the pub at large and addressing that last question to his shaken, tall companion. No, no, nothing we could do. We tried, of course, but it was just too late for him. But you know what she's like? He's done for now. The people in the pub were enraptured listening to the story related by the two shaken men who had recently arrived and were drinking deeply of their beer and hoping that their dear departed friend had not suffered too much and that he would rest in peace, and emphasising at every turn the incredible levels of bravery they had shown. When they had finished there was a great solemn hush broken only by worried mutterings about the dark thing on the road when there suddenly came a great crash as the door of the pub was flung open and into the room came Petticoat Loose. The two tall men backed away in terror along with the rest of the patrons and the sound of stools falling and men screaming almost drowned out the swearing, the threats and the unholy growling that came from Petticoat Loose. The short man holding grimly onto the knife in her back was almost completely obscured by her. He shouted over the din at his erstwhile companions. You two, get a priest, now! They, who could not even see him, stood there dumbfounded, backed right up against a wall. Don't just stand there, you fools, get a priest, now, or God help me, I'll loose her on you. And I kind of imagine him thrusting her forward at them to make his point. That did the trick, out they ran, with all but the most stout-hearted of the rest of the men of the pub. And then, time passed. Pretty awkward time, I imagine. Do, 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 do. Rawr, I'll rip your limbs off. The devil will take you. Do, 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 do. Can I get a drink, landlord? Rawr, oh, let me go. Let me go. I'll give you anything you want. It was like waiting for a bus with no timetable and no phone to check. And the bus is a priest and you've got to hold on to a ghost or it'll kill you. But it's not too difficult a task. So your mind starts to wander and you get a little bit. Board. You know, this isn't really a simile at all, it's just what happened. At least the short man got some beer. Maybe even Petticoat Loose gave in after a while. There's only so much ineffective blaspheming and spitting and threatening you can do before it just starts to look a little ridiculous. 
everyone involved started to feel a bit awkward. Maybe there was a whole interlude where the short man and petticoat loose made halting small talk with each other. So do you enjoy being a ghost then? Oh, you know, keeps me out of hell. Weather's awful, isn't it? Yeah, that's me, pathetic fallacy and all that. Perhaps not. But the time did pass, and when the two tall men finally returned, they had been successful in their task, for they brought a priest along with them. Now he, for a man who had probably just been dragged out of bed and told that he needed to confront the most evil and notorious spirit who had plagued the lands around for as long as anyone could remember, well, he was pretty well put together. Gonna be honest, I don't know why, but though there's no description to go on, I don't think this was some old dude. I think this was a youngish guy. Not just young, but a hot priest. I can't justify my reasoning. I'm telling the story, that's how he is now. A hot priest. And he was well informed and knew all about the previous attempts at laying Petticoat loose, and he wasn't about to make the same mistakes. Upon his arrival at the pub, he set to it at once, first pulling the knife from out of her back, and because he was a priest, he now had her in his power. And he proceeded in the way such things are done, drawing upon the examples of many ghost slayers before him. As an aside, yes, this process of banishment is often referred to as ghost laying. I will be making no further comments on this issue. Anything else with the hot priest and the ghostly woman? Completely within your imagination, nothing to do with me. So, step one of this process was to get her confession. Tell me, Mary, what damned you? What evil did you do that your restless spirit now roams this earth? She tried to be sullen, but the priest's words compelled her to provide an answer. I watered down the milk that I sold to people, she said. And he knew she was telling him of something that she had really done. But that wasn't what he wanted. He shook his head. Bad work that was, but not enough to damn you. Tell me, what did you do that has damned you so? She cursed, but the words were drawn out of her against her will by the holy power of the priest. I used these great hands and she held up her meat-tenderizer fists. To beat my father and my mother both. It was true, but the priest knew this game, and again he shook his head. It wasn't that. For the third time, and in the name of Lord God himself, I compel you. Answer me. Tell me what damned you. Ugh! I killed my two children before they were baptised. And there was actually a gasp from the otherwise silent watchers in the pub. Thank you. Finally. Yes, that is what damned you. And with confession extracted, the priest began to read his prayers at her, shrinking her down and down. I'll get out again. You will not. I am sending you not to Bayloch, but all the way to the Red Sea, with all the ghosts of Ireland who have gone there before. Well, I'll sink ships as they pass. You will not, he said calmly, for I will bury you face down. And she cursed him and the church, and she cursed God himself, but it did her no good. Finally, as she became very small, she asked in a quiet voice, How long will I be there for? Till Judgment Day, 
came the answer from the priest. Petticoat Loose gave one last terrible scream before she vanished entirely in a cloud of fire and smoke which filled up the pub. And that is the last that anyone saw of her. And as Judgment Day has not yet come around and she has not been seen since, we can assume she is still there in the bottom of the Red Sea, a very busy international shipping lane, head down, surrounded by marine life and the thousands upon thousands of other ghosts that have been banished there over the years. But despite her long absence from the land, people still use stories of her when they tell their children not to tarry upon the roads at night and carters are very strongly advised to always be impeccable models of politeness and civility to any woman they meet on their travels. And if they aren't, and they happen to turn up dead, let's all just agree to say it was Petticoat Loose. And that's the life and considerably longer and active afterlife of Petticoat Loose, still there to this day in the Red Sea. So, this story. As I said at the beginning, this was pieced together from quite a large number of folk tales from Southern Ireland, particularly County Waterford and Tipperary, obviously really given the location. Now, those appear in a number of sources, journals and the like, but more than anything else, those folk tales come from the collection of the Irish Folklore Commission. Now, I've talked in a bit more detail on the Irish fairy episodes about this heroic endeavour, so I don't want to repeat myself too much, but to sketch a brief outline. In 1935, the Irish state set up the publicly funded Folklore Commission to continue and deepen the work done by private folklore collectors, recording stories, beliefs, superstitions and a variety of other things. Spearheaded by Seamus O'Darga, the commission devised a variety of methods of collecting this material from as many people as they could, and they delivered. Over its lifetime, particularly in the 1930s and 40s, huge amounts of material was collected. As well as accounts provided by interviewees, school children were asked to provide stories they'd heard, and there were photographs and audio recordings to boot. This has given Ireland an incredibly rich amount of folklore material, and a great insight into local stories circulating at this time, the 1930s, delivered in the voices of the people who were telling the stories and being told them. This just isn't true for anywhere else I've covered on the podcast. In most of Britain, for instance, we are very reliant on a few private folklorists and most of the stories we have is very much mediated by them. The volume is absolutely staggering and what is perhaps even more relevant and impressive about this collection today is that almost all of it is available online at duchas.ie, that's D-U-C-H-A-S dot I-E. There's original notes and photographs and recordings, but also searchable transcripts. There's Irish and English both, so as I've said before, if you're interested at all in this, go check it out. There's a link on the website, and I've put a link to some of the odd stories I found on there as well. So, back to Petticoat Loose. She crops up in a lot of these accounts, that's where I first heard of her. And as I said, most of this episode was put together by combining those generally quite short folkloric accounts. Though these stories were collected in the 1930s and 40s mostly, Petticoat Loose was clearly an established figure in Waterford folklore by the mid-19th century. Renowned folklorist Anne O'Connor 
has tracked down the first mention that we have to an 1868 account by 19th century Irish nationalist, writer and eventual emigre to the US, Michael Kavanagh. Kavanagh talks of her as already well known as a childhood terror by that point, so she was around by the early 19th century at least, and possibly earlier than that. Now, the stories told of her are usually quite short and are often the kind I've included in this podcast. Obviously, I strung a bit of a narrative together, but common features are her immense weight, her ending up in Baylock or the Red Sea, and often, but not always, she's killed her children. The details, though, can change a lot from telling to telling, so the exact sins vary considerably, as does the method of banishment. Sometimes she'll be found making ropes out of sand or some other thankless task, a common punishment for ghosts, and other times she's explicitly said to be in a bottle. Now the term petticoat loose seems to have existed earlier and was applied to women who might have been, well, loose generally, with the story of the petticoats falling down sometimes being told separately from that of the afterlife stories of petticoat loose. Now, while I've really focused on Petticoat Loose here, it's worth mentioning that Anne O'Connor, who has really done the work on this story, notes that there are some very similar stories, she even refers to them as pretty much the same, in other parts of southern and western Ireland, where the ghost is given a different name. Mol Shognessy in Cork and Spridnabana in Limerick. Though interestingly, Petticoat Loose is, I think, somewhat distinguished from these very similar stories by being very closely tied to the Knockmildown Mountains and the townlands and villages in that area, which are often mentioned by name in the accounts of her. But clearly this story is a very well-established variant of a much more widely told tale. And O'Connor makes explicit in her work that the key features of these tales is the murder of unbaptized children. I've linked a short video of her talking about this on the website and telling a petticoat loose story, and there is also a link to her very comprehensive article on the subject, which if you're interested, go and read it, it's really quite good. So this leads into a wider point that this story and its many variants draw aspects from a lot of much wider ghost lore. Some very specific elements to Ireland, but they also share those in common with stories in Britain and indeed in the rest of Europe. Take for example the idea of a black-handled knife which can deal with the supernatural. It's actually quite specific to Irish legends. Bizarrely, I ended up finding these petticoat loose stories when I was researching a different tale with a black-handled knife but that was being used against the supernatural but in quite a different way than in this tale. But that is a motif that crops up often and has been combined to make some of these petticoat loose stories but doesn't crop up in all of them. But there are much more oft-repeated ideas than that about how you deal with ghosts. The whole ghost-laying process, shrinking them down, often getting them to confess, and most of all, setting them impossible tasks, banishing them into water, and particularly, banishing them into the Red Sea. I am a bit obsessed with the fact that the Red Sea is full of European ghosts, and my mind wanders to a film script idea where they all get out, but I realise that's kind of been done in Ghostbusters. Anyway, despite some efforts, I've not been able to definitively trace down why this motif crops up or where it might originate, but it's existed at least since the early modern period, the 17th century or so, and it's cross Europe, crosses denominations, and people just seem to agree, that's where you really want to put ghosts. Often you'll get it like we did today, where they've been put somewhere else first, but that wasn't good enough, so off to the Red Sea with you. Now, the Red Sea has long religious associations in Christianity and Judaism, and with texts around those religions that aren't the official ones. The idea that demons dwelt there seems to be a very old one. Obviously, there were a lot of terrible Egyptians drowned there by Moses. 
But at what point this idea of it maybe as a demon-infested place translates into, oh, just stick all your ghosts in there, I'm not sure. But it definitely did, and I'll be very surprised if I don't tell at least one more story on the podcast where this happens, because boy, it happens a lot. Despite this being part of many international tales, the way that these various aspects are combined with much more particular ideas, the heaviness of Petticoat Loose, her origin story of course, and the localization to the Knockmildown Mountains and the surrounds, mean that by blending these elements together, the Petticoat Loose corpus of tales are pretty unique, and Petticoat Loose is a pretty unique figure. Anne O'Connor says the legends are, quote, rich and multi-layered, unquote, drawing on old stories of unrepentant murderesses, themes reminiscent of medieval religious stories, and international legends about how dangerous women are ultimately vanquished. The tale also fits into the categories of stories about the dangers of ghosts coming back, and also clearly functioned as a bit of a nursery bogey, ghost stories to scare children. There's a lot going on with these tales, and they were clearly widely popular, the broader tradition of these kind of ghost stories, but Petticoat Loose in particular, tied to this area. This is evidenced by the fact that you can find so many different versions of this story online. It really is one that clearly captured people's imagination, and I find it very easy to imagine people casually mentioning, don't do that, or Petticoat Loose will get you. So, as so often on this podcast, we have a really interesting local variant that is made by combining ideas that are found in folk stories much further afield, and coming up with something new. And I really enjoyed this one and the research, mostly because the research just involved reading a lot of short petticoat loose stories, and they are great. Also, I'm not sure how much it came across in the telling, but I found myself constantly rooting for her, despite the fact she's definitely evil, by anyone's standards. But she's also a free spirit, in two meanings of that phrase. I kind of just found myself going, yeah, you go girl, but that just might reveal a little too much about my own preferences. So, there's a bit more I could talk about on this one, and especially the variants, but let's leave it there for now. Before I sign off though, I would just like to share a little bit of my plans for the next couple of months. This is only really relevant if you're listening in January 2023. I know I'm never consistent with the podcast, but I'm going to have the rest of January and February off from recording another episode. However, I'm doing that with the very clear aim of using that time to develop my live storytelling technique. This is all very early days yet, and I know for many of my listeners it's unlikely ever to affect you because you're very far away indeed, and many of the rest of you just won't want to come to or won't be able to come to a live show, understandably. However, while this is not going to start arena or even pub tours anytime soon, since starting the podcast I've realised I'd really like to practice telling these tales in person, and I've been saying that for about two years now. So, as I've got very little time, I think I really need to take a break from having to do an episode and focus instead on this aspect of the storytelling. It's probably the only way I'm going to get it to work. So, I'm going to do that. Where that ends up going, I don't know, but I'm excited to see. Maybe it'll crash and burn, but I kind of need to see. Now, this very much does not mean the podcast is going anywhere. The opposite, in fact, for I hope that in time, the two strands of storytelling will support each other. If it does go well, I might drop a story or two delivered without editing onto Patreon as part of my practice for this. They will be much less polished than my usual episodes, but I won't charge for them either. They'll just be free to Patreon supporters. So, yes, segue there. As you know by now, I have a Patreon. You can go check that out if you want. 
I do members episodes there, only charge when I do a new one, and that only happens when there's a main podcast episode, so every couple of months at the current release rate. There are somehow nine members episodes on there now, several more hours of Tales of Britain and Ireland content if you want it. The Patreon remains a major source of encouragement for me, and probably why I'm doing my live storytelling, so thank you so much for everyone who supports me on there, or who has supported me on there previously. Thank you this episode to Momoko, Dukakache, and Alison Sieber, who have signed up since my last shoutouts. Also, thanks of course to all of you for the reviews, and for just listening. I'm so glad you're enjoying. I should also mention that I've recently got a Mastodon account, the less said about Twitter the better now, giving you another way to follow me where I will post very infrequent updates. So, I will be back in March, and when I am, I'm pretty sure the tale I'm telling will be going back to Welsh mythology with the stories of the Mabinogion. We'll be on to Branch Free, which sees lots of really weird stuff going down on the Island of the Mighty. I look forward to seeing you again then. You can follow Tales of Britain and Ireland podcast on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. There's also a website, talesofbritainandireland.com, where there's a page for each episode which contains more information including illustrations, asides and recaps, along with other additional bits and pieces to explore. The intro music was written and performed by Alice Nichols, and the outro music by Mitch Keeley and Josh Newman. And you can find all the other musical credits on the episode page on the website. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please do share it with others or give it a review, as those really are the best ways to help us out. You can also join Tales of Britain and Ireland on Patreon to get extra members' episodes. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join me again soon. Mm